0: Slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka.
1: Hi, everybody. This is On a Mother Level. I'm Denise Hanitka. Thanks so much for being here for another episode. This is going to be a two episode week. Happy Thanksgiving week to you. So, this is my gift. Uh, My thanks to you for listening, and my giving is an extra episode this week. One is going to be serious, the other is going to be a little more lighthearted. So, get ready for that. Today, though, I want to bring you this interview with Michelle Gibson-Lake. She is an ICU nurse at Genesis East in Davenport, and she's frustrated, you guys. She's frustrated because she feels like people aren't doing enough to stop sending their loved ones into the hospital, to stop the spread of this virus, and I know there's a lot of mixed feelings about it. I get it. And so the purpose of this interview is not to preach to you, it's not to tell you what to do, it's not to make you believe any certain way about any certain thing. I know that I've had feelings throughout this about what's the right thing to do, what makes the most sense, why are government officials telling us one thing and doing another thing, and I also have important people in my life that are high risk. So I, like you... I'm trying to balance all of these thoughts in my head. And so the only thing I can do is what I try to do every night on the news. And that is bring you bottom line, the facts, give you perspectives, and hopefully help you feel more educated about whatever it is that you have questions about. So... Michelle Gibson Lake is here to tell you what her life is like right now in the ICU, to tell you uh, what nurses are facing right now in our area, in the hospital. And I heard a lot of things that I have not heard before. And I think it's important to hear from these frontline workers who are doing the jobs, because overall, I think we show you a lot of suits. We show you a lot of suits. We show you a lot of offices. We show you a lot of governors, a lot of people in uh, high positions who tell you what to do. And I understand that makes you feel skeptical. That makes you feel like these people aren't real to you. Well, Michelle is real, and Michelle has an important viewpoint. And so our conversation is powerful, and it's revealing, And I'm really glad that I get to share it with you. Thank you to everyone who responded to my call on Instagram looking for a frontline worker who'd be willing to speak to me. That's how Michelle came to me, and I very, very much appreciate your thoughtful responses to that. So to that end, please follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Denise, WQAD. And then you can follow the podcast. Pretty please give us a follow. It is at on a mother level that's it simple and easy help me build up that account i'm posting preview clips on there and so you can see what's coming up on the show you can see the pictures and things that we talk about on the show it'll be all there on a mother level on instagram so here we go with michelle gibson lake this is on a mother level thank you for listening cheers i'm having my coffee with you this morning i have water (laughs) Well, you must like um, getting up in the morning, or that must be your life schedule.
2: This is sleeping in, so. Oh, oh my
1: gosh! Yeah. Is that just because of your work schedule, or are you just a morning person?
2: Yeah, I work seven a.m. to seven p.m. See,
1: I'm more of a night person, and um, even after having two kids, I still like find a way to sleep in just a little bit <laughs> longer. <laughs> Well, thank you for agreeing to talk with me. I think this topic is so important because for some reason, I think the nurses and the frontline workers are the ones we're not hearing from in the Quad Cities, and I'm kind of confused as to why.
2: No one's really sure if the public wants to hear what we have to say because it's not good. So does uh, it make you nervous to talk about it? Not at this point. Like I, So I'm six years in. And I don't think that problems ever get solved if we pretend they're not there.
1: Okay. So give me a little um, idea then about your background.
2: Sure. So I was actually a teacher before I was a nurse and I I hated it. (laughs) And I went into nursing about six years ago and I've been in ICU the whole time.
1: Is like, did you get to choose to be in ICU or, or what?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, like you apply to specific units. They typically, they interview you and give you like a shadow day to see how you interact with everyone.
1: What drew you to that area?
2: It's the sickest patients and it requires like the most clinical skills. I just wanted that. <laughs>
1: yeah. So do you like working up there? And I guess yeah. like the strange word, but, but is it a fulfilling job?
2: Yeah, it really is. Um more so pre-pandemic. It's very satisfying when you have people who are really fighting for their lives and you get to see them recover. It's very rewarding. It's also very rewarding to watch families go through that be able to celebrate that yeah. but it's also like it's a very special thing to help someone die with a piece of dignity left and that's a thing like you don't know that people really want to hear that that I'm also here for people when they're dying like people only want to hear the good the good times
1: No and that makes sense but I think we would all hope that um, you know our last moments are around people who care about that, you know? So you're working 12-hour shifts. That's normal for you. Yeah. But are you putting in a lot of extra hours, or how has your workload changed?
2: We are all working as many hours as we physically can. You can't make an ICU nurse in a month, and so they... Send us other nurses to help us, but they can't take care of these patients. So it's like, okay, well, why don't you go around and wipe down everything with a bleach wipe? (laughs) Like you have to come up with something for them to do. I don't know what to tell you to do because you can't do this. The people in the medical floor have it worse, in my opinion. They have been undervalued for a long time. And, you know, they, they're doubling up their patient rooms. They're essentially doubling up their assignments. And people forget that we have a professional license. And if things go wrong, that falls on you personally and your license is at risk.
1: At this point, what... What percentage or how would you quantify how many people on the ICU floor are COVID patients?
2: I think right now we have 25 patients and 23 of them are COVID.
1: Wow. And how sick <laughs> would you these patients are? Okay, in Davenport. Yeah. How, sick, how sick are these patients who have COVID-19 in the ICU?
2: Almost all of them end up on a ventilator, whether it's the first day they come to ICU, whether it's a weekend. We've had a few. That have avoided it and go back up to the medical floor, but it's very bleak. They do not do well. You know, every once in a while, you you like put all your eggs in one basket of a patient, and you're like, this one will do great. And every once in a while, you know, one of them does, but that's not the norm. The norm is that they don't.
1: So, what is it that you're doing for these patients right now? So they're on ventilators. What therapeutics have been most successful in the icu right now
2: so we do the convalescent plasma well we did (laughs) there's been a shortage so you know they are on a waiting list for that now get that they get vitamin c and zinc remdesivir pretty much the standard the rules the guidelines for anticoagulation so like blood thinners are always changing. And that's probably the, the scariest thing that we've seen is these people are throwing blood clots all over um, in their heart and their lungs, in their legs. We don't know how or why the virus is associated with that. And is that what's killing people in many cases, these blood clots? Occasionally. So they are on really high oxygen requirements and um, they require a lot of what's called PEEP, which is like pressure to force open your lung sacs. Typically, we would only have someone on a PEEP higher than 12 once once in a blue moon before COVID. And now, you know, you'll see people on a PEEP of 24 to keep them alive, but then that causes damage to the lungs and ultimately they can't recover.
1: That seems kind of counterintuitive in a way that it's damaging them, but it's also keeping them alive.
2: Right. (laughs) Huh. That's a lot of ICU in a nutshell. Is like doing things that are not good for you, but they're going to keep you alive. (laughs) Okay. Can
1: you paint a picture for what it's like being in one of these rooms right now? So, I mean, if a patient is on a ventilator, are they conscious? Are they able to engage with you or no?
2: If they do well enough And we're going to try and wean them off the ventilator. They have to be awake before we take the tube out. But typically with our COVID patients, it goes very quickly from, all right, we're going to put them on the ventilator. We get all of our stuff ready. You put the tube in. It doesn't go well because these patients just, it never, never goes well. And we've seen that they're really hard to sedate. We've actually multiple times had shortages of sedation medications. And like the pharmacy does a really good job of hauling around and getting things. But there's like this limbo window where you don't know if that's going to happen. And you're like, if these patients wake up, they're going to die. And a lot of them have to also be paralyzed So sedation just makes them um, sleepy and the paralytic makes it so they can't move and they can't ideally so they cannot breathe on their own so that we can control even that, you know, they'll wake up and two weeks will have gone by and they have no idea.
1: How long is the average patient staying in ICU with COVID?
2: So I don't know the exact number at this point, but it's definitely much longer than our, our average length the day was about one to two days before COVID. I mean, everyone saw the news story about the guy we had for 100 days. That's, you know, the other extreme, probably at least five days. And that's, that's a good run. The other people, it's more like two weeks. And it's because typically at two weeks, either they're doing so poorly that we recommend families to um, let them go or we send them to another facility. So after
1: two weeks, they're not usually a successful um, situation.
2: Like you always hold out hope and you know, the families do too, but more often than not.
1: I hate that I have to ask this question, but I'm going to. Do you see the surges and the um, caseloads exactly the way that they're presented on the news. For people out there who think it's not real or numbers are inflated, do you see it the way it's presented?
2: Yes, 100%. And that's part of what's so frustrating. It's not like the information's not out there. People just don't want to hear it. And so we are really, really bracing ourselves for what happens after the holidays. Most of us are not going to be celebrating with our families I picked up to work because I was like, well, what am I going to be doing? (laughs) And so it's just hard when you are making all these sacrifices in your own life. And then like last night I was in Bettendorf and I drove by like Panchero's Buffalo Wild Wings on Utica Ridge and they're both packed with people inside eating. And I'm like, what is happening Why is this still happening? I don't know if they don't care or they just think it's not going to happen to them or their family or blows my mind that people don't seem to understand.
1: What do you say to people? I'm sure a lot of people say things that frustrate you. What kind of things do you hear?
2: People typically know what I do. So they filter themselves a little bit. I'm sure people usually just ask me, is it as bad as they say? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's terrible. It's definitely hard when there's false reports out there that that it's not. And people see that and they're like, well, huh, is that true? But there's always um, some people that are under age 60 and they're like, well, I'm fine. So I'll be fine. I'm like, okay, well, I just shipped a 37-year-old out to Iowa City, so yeah. Larger numbers of people who
1: do not fit that over 60 category?
2: Yeah, typically in the ICU, they are people with, you know, especially people who are obese or diabetic. Seen that to be a pretty significant comorbidity, but they are typically at least... 50, 50 plus, and it is hard because people that age didn't have conversations with their family about what they would want if they needed to be on a ventilator. It's very difficult because the families can't come see them, and they can't see that what we do to people is not pleasant.
1: I did have a doctor tell me that just this last week, that if people actually saw what it looked like to have a loved one on a ventilator. Yeah. Do you feel like that's true? How, like, how obviously you wouldn't want to publish a picture like that. There's so many, you know, rules and, right. <laughs> you know, things, but, but I mean, can you, can you describe it for somebody?
2: Yeah. I mean, sometimes people don't even look like they're alive. They can't move. They don't open their eyes. They've got a tube for every hole. They are on tube feeds for nutrition. They, there's no such thing as privacy. They're not they're not aware of anything. You know, you their spouse could come in and tell them they love them. They have no idea. They're just in limbo waiting to see if they ever come back. It is hard because sometimes we let families come in to help them decide what to do. And their reaction is typically that they want to keep going then because it's the first time they got to see them. They don't want to never see them again. And I really feel for them. I can't imagine what that would be like. Um, if, if it was my parents and you told me I couldn't see them, I would be devastated.
1: Overall, visitors are still not allowed except in these these little circumstances?
2: No. There's visitors at both hospitals, Trinity and Genesis, for non-COVID patient, nursing across the board is displeased with that. You know the community spread is so high, and then you're going to let people in the hospital where there's even more COVID. It, it doesn't add up to me, and I think that we are doing a disservice to the community by pretending like that's okay.
1: So because they, they, I mean, they really did clamp down on visitors for a while, and yeah. so you think that should be reinstated because of the yeah. situation. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's worse than it's ever been, and we're going to talk about letting more people in. That doesn't doesn't add up.
1: But overall, in your area in the ICU, mm-hmm. there aren't visitors.
2: Right? We've again, there's like two patients without COVID, and they have visitors. Um, yeah. But which I can only imagine what those visitors think because you walk you walk down the hall and. You can basically see in every room. So I can only imagine what they think when they come through. Does that
1: make you the pseudo friend family member for a lot of these patients? What's that like for you?
2: In the beginning, we weren't letting people come in, even if the patient was going to die. And that was um, probably one of the most difficult times for me personally, because you would be sitting alone in a room with someone while their family watches them die on a webcam. So you feel an obligation to do what you would want someone to do and, you know, hold their hand and tell them that it's okay. And so now we do let two family members come in for end of life. And you still... um, it's still very difficult because you just feel an obligation to your patients to be there.
1: I feel like looking at your face, you're thinking of a certain patient or a certain circumstance. You remember yeah. something. What
2: is that? Yeah. You just get very invested in your patients. I mean, it's very difficult. And, you know, we always tell the new nurses, like, you have to separate yourself and remember that this is not your family. You can't cry in there. <laughs> Like you ha like you can't put your emotions on them too, yeah, it's it's a lot, and I understand completely why a lot of people would not want to work. I see you for that reason,
1: probably not easy to do though, I mean, of course, like that's what the textbook says to do. keep it separate, but you can't yeah. always do that, can
2: you? We have a rather dark sense of humor, and that kind of helps, like you're like, okay, but. It is difficult and I don't I don't know that I could do it without the co-workers that I have. We're all very close and it's actually very difficult for us to not hang out outside of work because that's kind of those are the only people that really know what you're going through.
1: So how would you say that you're able to decompress and handle the stress load that you're carrying? What works for you?
2: I would say we're not <laughs> You just keep coming back and you, you just push through it. Like at this point, no one's, no one's doing well, like mentally. (laughs) Like everyone's just like, okay, the knowledge that there's a vaccine coming is really the only thing keeping us going at this point. The fact that somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that this isn't forever, but unwinding isn't really like a thing anymore. I don't think, you know, (laughs) (laughs) We're like, okay, I need one day off so that I can go work another 12 days in a row. When was your last day off? I'm in DNP school, so I'm getting a doctorate in nursing to be a nurse practitioner. So on my days off, I'm doing clinicals for that like today i'm going to springfield for school and tomorrow i'll be doing clinicals but days off is uh few and far between back to the
1: concept of the vaccine do you think that people are going to get it do you think people will trust it and believe in it
2: that would be nice i'm hopeful it depends greatly on media support. If there are groups of people, you know, saying that it's not working, you don't get it, or your hair is going to fall out, you know, that will certainly make it more difficult. I personally will be getting it once I, I mean, I want to see the actual research on it. Traditionally, the United States has been one of the more difficult places to get drugs approved compared to other countries. So and I mean, the evident like what I've read so far seems like the safety profile is pretty good. It's comparable to a flu shot. I will be getting it. <laughs> I'm hopeful that other people will. I am kind of interested to see what they say about pregnant people. At any given time, we have several pregnant nurses, you know, we worry about them.
1: Let's talk a little bit about staffing. Are you guys seeing the shortages that other hospitals are reporting? I mean, just last night, we talked about the Mayo Clinic being down 30% of its
2: staff. Are you seeing the same thing? Absolutely. It's like working in a war zone at this point. Someone just called in, they got a fever, they got to go get tested, they think they're going to be positive. What are we going to do? It's very difficult when it's more experienced nurses out sick because you're like, okay, well, who's going to... Be running this when things go bad overnight. Can't leave the baby nurses alone. The other day, Trinity had about a hundred staff out with COVID, and Genesis had about a hundred staff out. If all those people weren't in ICU or ER or the medical unit, that wouldn't be a big deal. But for ICU, we need every single one of them. <laughs> and I worry about that. I'm like You feel so guilty. The days that you're not at work, you feel guilty that you're not there. The days that you are at work, you feel guilty that you're not giving people adequate care because you just don't have the resources. Nurses that have been out sick, that's what they say too. They're like, I just feel so guilty I'm not there with you guys. It's been a real struggle and they, you know, they they send us warm bodies, but those warm bodies do not have the skills. And so they're trying to help us, but there's only so much they can offer us.
1: Is patient care suffering because of that, or is it just more putting a stress on the more skilled?
2: Oh, no. Patient care is for sure suffering, especially because, you know, we didn't magically get more doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs there's still the same number of them. They just physically can't do their best work managing this many patients who are all this sick. The people who are not doing terribly that day, they get kind of pushed to the side because their needs aren't as urgent. The real problem with the hospital administrations has been poor planning. You know, this yes this surge is relatively new but we've been doing this for what 9 months you knew at some point it was going to be like this and yet here we are with no set plan in place and things changing every day i just don't it blows my mind that again you knew this was coming just like in the beginning we didn't have enough ppe now there's just no plan. The plan is like, okay, we're gonna open this other unit. Well, who's gonna staff that unit? What provider is gonna take care of these patients? Thing, you know, things, logistical things have not been thought out properly. Like it should have already been laid out what we're doing and who is doing it.
1: But so the consequences of not having a plan.
2: Um, I think it definitely adds to the stress for staff because it takes three admissions to push you over the edge, and that's not very many. For right now, Iowa City is still accepting transfers from the Quad Cities, and we've kind of worked out with them that they will keep taking transfers from us until they hit their next surge level. And then we are expected to take on more. And all they tell us is like, okay, well, then we're going to open this other unit. And I'm like, okay, do we have supplies there? Do we have meds there? Who's going to manage those ventilators? What nurses are going to be there? What What's the expectation for us as far as documenting things? Are you able to ask those
1: questions?
2: Um, you can ask all you want, but the answer is typically, I don't know, or I'll ask someone or We'll figure it out as it comes, or you get, like, drastically different answers from different people. So I want to go back to
1: something you were talking about a second ago. So you said that, that Iowa City would take transfers up until they hit a certain surge level. So then let's say Iowa City says no more, then what?
2: Then we open up additional units at our hospitals. The PACU, or like the operating room recovery area, Genesis is prepared to open that. And I think Trinity is planning on doing the same. When they, like Trinity um, already has, they have their medical ICU and their surgical ICU that they've always had. And then they have an overflow ICU that they're also using And then Genesis has a 20-bed ICU and a six-bed, what they call PCU, that they're using. The next step for both is a bit more drastic. You know, it's a big, it's a big bay area with no walls. It takes it to another level. Do you think that will be necessary? I do. Um, We haven't even hit the holidays. And from what we've seen so far, people have no intention of, Wearing masks more. I I don't see people changing their ways this far in. Well, here we are six days away from Thanksgiving. So what do we say to people? Six people or less. Do it on Zoom. What we're planning on is um, my mother-in-law is like the best cook in the world. And so she's going to make some food and we're going to drive by, pick, pick it up, and then eat at our own houses. I was like, well, we could just sit on Zoom. I mean, it's fine. (laughs) And people need to just get creative about things they can do other than, you know, packing 20 people around a big table all breathing on each other, breathing on the food. I don't think that in-person gatherings are very realistic as far as the safety of it right now.
1: When you talk about messing with people's Thanksgiving dinners and their Thanksgiving traditions, people get very protective of that. It feels very government meddling to people.
2: I know. You no. Know? People yeah. don't like it. I don't like it, but I'd rather do it one time than five times. <laughs> Nobody wants to be apart from their families on the holidays. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I'm very sad about it, but at the same time like I could never live with getting my family members sick. I don't want to take that risk. And if they get me sick, then I'm out of work. And then I'm just going to drown in guilt. (laughs) I just don't understand how people are rationalizing it. I think a lot of people are like, well, if I get COVID, so what? Well, the so what is you could give it to someone else who could die. I'm
1: sure you hear the argument all the time, the why are we shutting down the economy for something that has a 99% survival rate? Yeah. What's your response to that?
2: that maybe we need to get more creative with our economy. You know, I do feel very sad for people who run bars and work in bars, but bars are the number one place where people are picking this up. You know, I think we just need to have some more creativity in our solutions other than close it all down. And I think it's certainly not helping that, that there's no coordinated approaches from the government. You know, Iowa and Illinois are doing drastically different things. And that's very inconvenient for the Quad Cities. It's very difficult. Like when Illinois shut everything down, you saw a lot of businesses open up second locations in Iowa. And like, that's not the point of this. Like if if we're not all in this together, it doesn't work.
1: Did did you see the interview uh, recently with that nurse from South Dakota? who said that when patients are dying, many of them are dying in denial and insisting that they don't have COVID and they must have something else. It must be the flu. It must be lung cancer.
2: Have you seen any of that? Well, they're not usually awake for me. So they don't have a chance to tell me what they think. Um, I did have one patient who was very, very ill. And he regretted his choices. He was like, you know, I thought wearing a mask was stupid and I thought that this wouldn't happen to me because I'm a healthy guy. Now here I am and I've been in the hospital for months. I do wish more people who recovered would talk about their experiences and talk about how sick they were. Talk about the fact that, you know, maybe you should wear a mask. Because I've seen several interviews with people who were hospitalized and they You know, they'll talk about being sick and being in the hospital, but there's the component that I wish was there is the urging people to take it seriously. Do you feel differently about your
1: job today than you did, let's say, this time last year? Most definitely. What's the biggest change for you, do you think?
2: Stress. I think everyone's frustration level is so high at this point because... Nurses are at the point of feeling like no one cares about us, clearly, because all you have to do is wear a mask, and I'm there wearing, sometimes I have to put a sticker on my nose because it's, like, breaking down the skin, and then an N95, and then a regular face mask to, like, protect my N95, and then we have face shields or goggles, but a bunch of us have bought these, like... Um, Grinders helmet so that you can, like, flip the little shield up. And then um, a reusable gown in and out of rooms all day, taking all of that on and off, sanitizing it every time. And people are complaining that they have to wear a mask when they go inside the gas station. And I'm like, you honestly have no idea. It just gets very, you know, before this, I didn't feel any animosity for the public for not knowing things that make them sick. And now I kind of do. (laughs) I don't feel like that's asking much. Thanksgiving, bigger ask. Still asking it. But if we had just consistently worn a mask, done a good job with shutdowns across the board for two weeks in March, we probably could have avoided this. And that's so disheartening is that you think about all the patients you've had since then who have died for no reason and you know before I would give myself more of a breather like after my patient died I would like look up their obituary and read it sometimes I would donate flowers now no I cannot allow myself to like get that attached to them because I know then the next one is coming so quickly. That's going to be heartbreaking. It is. It really is. And on our unit, we all really lean on each other and like, we'll talk, we'll say things very matter of factly to each other. We'll be like, so I just sat in my driveway when I got home last night and cried for 30 minutes and, we're, and everyone's like, oh, that again. We have a very strong bond but it is very isolating because other people, you know, what, are, what do you say to that when someone says that? Like, I'm sorry. I think I also have a greater appreciation for the people that I work with.
1: What's the most important thing that you want people in the Quad Cities to take away from what you're saying today?
2: That COVID is serious. It's real. It's here. Without us doing anything, the death number is just going to keep rising especially in Iowa, like this is not what we want Iowa to be known for, and that you can pass this virus without any symptoms. And so every time you go see your family, you are taking a huge risk. What do you
1: think is the, is the most important thing that your employer can do differently to make your job easier or make you feel less stressed or more successful at the end of the day?
2: Well, I think they're starting to understand that... Things have not been going well. So Genesis got a bunch of money from the governor. And so we are seeing some of that in terms of better incentives, pick up extra shifts and like um, Genesis and Trinity are doing a one-time hazard pay bonus. And it's not, I mean, nobody's in it for the money, but it's the fact that you recognize that we are making sacrifices You know, we are spending time away from our families. We're working extreme numbers of hours. And yeah, we want the financial compensation as a way to say we value you instead of sending us pizzas. Pizza's great. Love pizza. That's not the right level of of appreciation. So we are starting to see better financial incentives for all the extra overtime we're working. And I think that's really the key here is working in a pandemic warrants a little more than free pizza.
1: Every time, you know, we've asked to speak to someone who's really on the front lines and we're denied for this reason or that reason, my thought is always, well, you keep telling us how your workers are the heroes. So why can't we see the faces of those heroes? That was always so confusing to me. Show, like, show us, let, let them be recognized. Let the Quad Cities see the faces of the people who are doing this hard work. That was always so
2: confusing to me. So I don't think anyone wants us to take the mask off, so to speak. They don't want their healthcare heroes. First of all, we all hate that. <laughs> We're all just going to work and doing our job. And doing our best to keep it together. Like we don't feel like we don't want to be called heroes. We don't we don't want a big banner that says heroes work here. Like that's not that's not what we're there for. That's not doesn't do anything for us. But I think that the hospitals are worried that we will say that there's not enough PPE, that the staffing is unsafe, and that we really have no idea what we're doing as a whole as a hospital system as a community but those things are all true we've become desensitized to the PPE thing because reusing PPE is now commonplace back in March and April you had one N95 and you wore it until it broke then we got one once a week now we can get one every day I think and that's great. It doesn't change the fact that it's single use. I appreciate that they've gotten supplies. But again, you knew this virus was coming and we were very ill prepared. The staffing, you know, I understand hospitals tell us that they're doing the best they can. They don't want to scare the public is the one thing we hear a lot is, well, we don't, we don't want to cause mass panic. Okay, well, maybe we should have Because clearly people are not taking this seriously. So I get why they don't want anyone to talk about it. And I do think that there are people within both administrations who work in administration who are working very hard. There's also the problem of too many layers of bureaucracy in hospitals. So things will end up in committees for an indefinite amount of time when things are needed now.
1: Something though about talking to you, I still feel, despite everything you're saying, the people who are actually caring for the people care so much.
0: And at the end of the
1: day, that's the silver lining, is looking at your face right now and knowing that this matters to you. I think that's an important message too.
2: Even like the other day, I had a family member call on the phone and she was just sobbing and like, The family members have been so appreciative and I, I really like, I can't imagine what they're going through and yet then they're calling to thank me. And I'm like, I I'm literally just doing my job. (laughs) That's, that's what counts to us is seeing our patients make it or seeing that we've brought some comfort to their families when they don't. And
1: that's why you got into this line of work.
2: Right. Every day I think to myself, what if this was my first year as a nurse and you feel pressure to do what your employer wants you to do, but also you have a license that you need to protect and you need to speak up when you're doing things that aren't safe, but you're also like, this is a pandemic. (laughs) And I just, I really feel for all the new nurses out there who Are less than a year into this because the first year you you feel like you're an imposter and like you don't know what you're doing (laughs) and I I just think that um there there should be more appreciation for people who are still choosing to go into these professions right now you know some places are closing their doors to students I don't think that's a good idea I I think that people need to see what they're signing up for and you know we're We're at a point of paying travelers a lot of money to come in and help us. These warm bodies are very eager to help. The students that I see are so eager. You know, they're excited about giving someone a bed bath. Like, that's the highlight of their day. (laughs) And that we need to utilize them and help them and not put their education on hold.
1: What is your nurse-patient ratio right now?
2: So, for ICU, we typically take one to two patients per nurse. And we have been able to mostly do that, sometimes three. Beyond three, you're in a disaster scenario. That's what we're looking at for our next surge level. We would probably all have three at least. And again, that's where your guilt sinks in. You're like, well, if I don't pick up, everybody's going to have three patients. If I don't pick up, it's not going to be safe. And not, and then if you are there already, you're like, great, these people aren't going to get as good a care because I have too many. So one to two, two to one is the typical ICU ratio nationwide. And we try to stick to that when we can. The group that I work with, they're just, you know, we're, we're all picking up as many shifts as we can. And we send out text messages every day. Let's see. I'm certain that I've already received some today. I already (laughs) received two text messages for this morning. That's pretty typical anymore. Like every day, our nurse educator has done a really good job of like, sometimes she'll spend the entire day texting and calling nurses to try and find someone to come work, even if it's just four hours. We all know it's a lot easier to ignore like a standardized text message sent to everyone than someone personally calling you like, Hey, what are you doing today? Could really use you. So we've done a good job of that. The medical floor is hit harder. There's more of them, more nurses. I don't think they're universally as close to each other. Um, I know they've had a lot of nurses leave during this and I don't blame them. I mean, if if I was close to the end of my career, I would consider, you know, we have some nurses that are older, and I'm like, why are you here? You need to go home. Like, you can't do this. And they don't listen, because of course. But the medical floors, one day a nurse told me she had 10 patients. And I was like, what do you mean? You can't have 10, because they shouldn't really ever have more than five. And so they're in an impossible situation up there. Um, we really feel for them because they're going through what we're going through, but like even more because we've had a lot of practice with wild things in ICU. And now they're they're forced to take sicker patients that would have previously come down to ICU for observation overnight or whatever. But we don't have the beds. So you gotta keep them. You got to fix it. So I know a lot of them are scared and stressed about the sickness of their patients.
1: So yeah, when you say like medical floor, you mean a mix of all kinds of patients that need different kinds of care, not just COVID patients?
2: Well, that's what it used to be.
1: Okay, now it's COVID patients?
2: Now it is 32 rooms and 64 COVID patients.
1: Whoa. And so the rooms every, are not. Everybody's meant, got a COVID yeah. buddy.
2: Yeah. And they're not meant to have two. And it's real weird for me when I walk in the room and like you have to walk past one patient to get to the other. And you're like, hi, ignore me in your room. It's very bizarre. It, it seems like that would be
1: bad for the patient too.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. It's not a good setup. You either get a window view or or the bathroom is on your side, but not both.
1: Well, if it's anything like the birth center rooms, like they're, they're nicely sized, but you add another right. bed in there and holy smokes.
2: Yeah, I think they're the same size. It's not ideal. <laughs> wow! It's, there's like a shower curtain divider. And now we're gonna start doing the same thing. The orthopedic floor will be next.
1: To, um, to allow COVID patients? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because Genesis put all their COVID on one floor, and then they're going to open up another COVID floor. And Trinity did it completely opposite. They um, spread out their COVID patients over multiple units, and they have like X amount of double beds per floor instead of all on one floor. It's interesting to think about which is better because the having them all on the same floor is better from an infectious disease standpoint. You know, it's all contained. But when you look at the stress that it puts on those nurses, that's a lot. Whereas they're spreading it out and everyone's equally a little bit stressed and annoyed instead of this one floor just consumed.
1: Well, I've kept you for an hour, Michelle. So I want to let you go unless there's anything else that you think we should talk about. Cause I think there's, I think there's a lot of really good information here that, that people need to know about. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would just say that we really appreciate the community members who are doing their best to slow the spread. We're sorry it's not working. And, you know, we we really are doing our best. The nurses, we are showing up every day and trying to, trying to win sometimes. It means a lot, the people that do wear a mask at all times with others. That do stay home when they can, it means a lot, and we take it personally when people choose not to.
1: So it sounds like maybe fewer free lunches, fewer free pizzas, and more mask wearing and doing yeah. what you're supposed to do. Right. That will be the gift to you.
2: Yeah, that would be
1: the best gift. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for your work and um, I'm sorry for all the times I didn't wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. My thanks to Michelle. I think she has such an important viewpoint and she's out there doing the hard work. I mean, you can't tell her something is not real when it is literally everything she eats, sleeps and breathes. So thank you, Michelle, for being so candid and transparent. And so our gift to her can be to reconsider our Thanksgiving plans. Be responsible with our actions and deliberate over the holiday season while still getting all those festivities in. And I hope that there's a way that we can all do both. So thank you all for listening. On a Mother Level is hosted and produced by me, Denise Hanitka. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was edited by Jordan Franks. He is wonderful and always helps us make sure that the audio sounds nice. So thank you to Jordan. Thank you to you. And happy Thanksgiving, everybody. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.